Hello and welcome back to another Andrew Marshall Fitness, Fitness for 9 to Fivers podcast. Today we have another very special guest on. Adam is joining us today. Um, he is also another member of the Fitness Mastermind that we are part of. You also have heard previously Brad and Mike. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about Adam's business, who he helps, what he does, and he's got some incredible experience and insights. Um, over the last few years as a, as a coach in, throughout his career, um, and we're going to get into them today. Um, Adam, how are you doing? Good, man. How are you? How are you feeling? I'm, I'm excellent, mate. I'm excellent. Good to hear. Um, I'm feeling good. To, well, I'm not feeling so good today. I'm actually off in the sick at the moment, but I'm feeling a lot better today. Uh-oh. All right. Um, so <laughs> thankfully, you can't get it through this podcast, but um, we're feeling good. Um, how, how's your day been today, Adam? It's good. Yeah. So I kind of, I came in today, I had a few clients in the morning mm-hmm. and then usually I get, so the day kind of works a little, it's kind of weird. We joke, we have three days in one, right? So you come in early in the morning, you do some session work Okay. and, and I do, that's about anywhere from eight or nine till 10 or 11. And then from like 11 to two, we get to train ourselves. So we call it the, uh, the power hour. That's where us coaches just all work out at one time. We have the music going. Yeah, it's real fun. And then usually that ends kind of early. So I said 11 to 2. So that's about an hour and a half, two hours. And then I spend the other two hours kind of just catching up or creating on some different processes. And then for me personally, because I work with athletes, school ends at 3. So a lot of the times from like 3 o'clock to like 7 or 8 o'clock, I'm just going nonstop with athlete sessions after athlete sessions. So okay. let's kind yeah. of talk a bit about that, Adam. So who is it you're specifically working with at the moment? Tell us a little about, you've got a pretty amazing story um, and some, some good experience. So can I tell us a bit about how you get into fitness, how you get into the coaching, and then obviously working with those athletes over time? Can I give us a wee bit of background on that, if you could, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I played basketball pretty much my whole life from like really, really young, I would say like fourth grade. And as I got into it, I I quit all my other sports. I focused only on basketball. And I actually played in Indiana in the Midwest with the people don't know the movie Hoosiers. It's literally like God's country when it comes to like, you know, all things basketball. I'm talking at a high school game. There's literally 10, 15,000 people. Like you're shitting. Is that, that, that just the like high school, college kind of games? Yeah, yeah. Like this was just this was just high school, right? This isn't even college. It's not like we're at Notre Dame. So I'm, I'm coming from the Midwest where like basketball is everything. So I'm talking, I'm, I'm in eighth grade, ninth grade. I'm waking up at 5 a.m. I'm like, so what, oh, age, what age are you there? Sorry. Yeah, so I'm in ninth grade. What age so is that? Ninth grade is like 14, 15. 14, right, okay. yeah, we've got, yeah, we've got a different kind of system. So. Right. And what I do is, is I'm waking up at 5 a.m. to go get a skill workout in before school. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? This is crazy. And I'm competing with all these other guys and we're playing there. And long story short, you know, I was there for my freshman year. Unfortunately, I got hurt. So I hurt my ankle. And then just to do to my parents' work, we moved out to New Jersey. So I moved from the east, the Midwest to the East Coast. And then after that, I still was into basketball. And then I played throughout high school, got into college. I got a scholarship. And then once I was there, and, um, I hurt my ankle again. And once I hurt my ankle again for the second time, now I'm about 20. 
this time was super hard to come back from because I'm playing against super competitive kids. I'm already at a disadvantage. And I was like, all right, I need to figure something out. So I went to a place called DeFranco's Training Systems. And it was here. And if for Joe DeFranco is like the, you know, Goldman Sachs of the business world. he's just like the king. So I was starstruck. I'm seeing celebrities and athletes and all these different people in there and met a lot of cool coaches, but here's where my love of training began so much so that I actually stopped playing basketball to pursue the love of training. And I did an internship there for free, obviously, and just learned from so many coaches and from Joe and just being there. And then I just kind of helped out on the side and just, he never paid me, but I just like worked there uh, for free just to learn more. And then from there, Joe DeFranco kind of shut down shop and went purely online um, after a few other things happened. Right. Okay. And I, and then I went to the place I'm currently at varsity house gym, starting back at the totem pole again, bottom of the totem pole where I'm an intern this internship was hard though. It was hands-on. I'm getting my butt kicked day in and day out. <laughs> and then, so as I'm there, I'm like, okay, you know, now I got a job. I'm a part-timer. What can I do to make a difference here? What can I do that's different? And they were training a lot of football players at the time. So what I did is I kind of created training basketball players. And that's where I found my niche for my love of basketball and kind of basketball performance training in general. And then I really just dove in heads first. And that was about two years ago, two and a half years ago. Okay. And now that's where I built up my own little company called Varsity Hoops. And that's where I'm kind of online and venturing out and doing all that stuff. So Excellent. And so you're specifically working with um, basketball players at the moment? Yeah. So I would say the majority of athletes and clientele I work with are basketball players. But I still work with all athletes. Yeah, yeah. The principles apply universally. Yeah, of course. And then I still work with some adults as well. So, and that kind of just keeps me fresh a little bit and it helps me get personal interaction and kind of you're just building your toolbox, if you will. Yeah, 100%. So, obviously, you're working with a lot of um, high end athletes or, you know, you know professionals and things like that. There must be a very intense kind of training regime. And obviously, a lot of people can learn a lot from that. So what does a kind of um, a typical training day, day look like in the life of some of these athletes? Yeah, so, you know, contrary to popular belief, when you, it depends on the athlete that you get, right? So, like, some guys are, like, just freaks genetically. Yeah. <laughs> some, some guys are just, like, they work really hard for it to get after it a little bit. And they're not as genetically gifted, so they have to put more time into the weight room. So (laughs) that answer is kind of broad in that you can't just apply like one principle to one group because my guys who are like freaky athletes, their training is actually really basic. So I'll come in, I'll have them do a specific warm up, different movement patterns, make sure that they feel good, they move well, they're positioned right. And then we'll do like a lot of dynamic warm up stuff. So anything from sprint and jump techniques. And then we'll do some type of sprint or jump variation. And then I followed up with a lot of body weight strength work. Like you'd be surprised. A lot of the guys that you think are just these freaks are not that strong, especially basketball players. So here's a fun story. I was with, I interviewed the Lakers strength and conditioning coach, like the Los Angeles. Okay. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So I'm talking to him and he told me, I don't know if you guys know, but do you know Ron Artest? I do not know. 
so Ron Artest changed his name to Meta World Peace. He was known as this like super jacked athlete <laughs> and like such a good defender, right? And if you were to right, see right. him, you'd be like, that guy's a physical specimen. <laughs> Sean told me that in the weight room, the most he ever dumbbell benched for five reps was 75 pounds. Really? Even I can do more than that. <laughs> yeah. So you and most people can. And you would think, like, wait, what? He didn't just bang out the 150s for 10 reps. So it's funny because that is why those athletes at the highest level, they move so well and they transfer energy so well that you can't train them like you would a typically bodybuilder or strength athlete because it takes away from their ability to move. Like if Ron Artest got super strong and big, he's such a genetic freak that literally he could probably get his body weight up to 300 pounds and then he wouldn't be able to move and jump like he normally can. Yeah. So I think. I think there's a good point in that as well for the like general population people. So you can't just, um, you know, you often get the, the question that what's the best diet or what's the best training program? What's the best this, that? And there's got to be context in absolutely everything you do. As you said there, everybody's different. Everybody's got their own warm-ups, their own, you know, mechanics, the way they move, um, their own advances in different genetics. So when people are asking, you know, what's the best diet I need to go on or what do you think of this training program? You know, it, it all comes down to, it depends, it depends on your situation and what you what, what level you're at, what's your experience, what's your likes and dislikes, you know? Um, so what do you find is some of the kind of most um, effective training methods for the kind of general population that you use? What kind of methods do you use for that? Yeah. So most athletes, we put them through this process, right? No matter where they are, if it's their first time training with us, they're most likely a novice athlete. And novice doesn't mean inexperienced. Novice is just kind of like, you've never trained like that before. Yeah, yeah. If I was to train with you, I'm a novice because I've never trained the way you train. Absolutely. Yeah. So when they come in, we kind of go through a checklist and one, you know, we're super detailed and we make sure that one, we have an injury report on them. So what's your current injury? What does your injury history look like? When's the last time you got surgery? All those questions. Then they come in and we always do what's called the stationary warm-up. And that's just like squats, lunges, different mobility drills that serves as a checklist to be like, okay, this athlete feels good. He's healthy. Okay. Then we get them into what's called a specific warm-up. And that's just more specific training prep for what they're about to do. So if you're about to bench press, yeah, You're probably going to do band pull-aparts, external rotation of the shoulder, all those types of things. Mm -hmm. So based upon what we have for that day, we get that in there. And then our sprint and jump work, you know, that's kind of my specialty and where I feel I'm the best at. So I have a whole 13-week plan mapped out because the way I typically train an athlete is four 13-week blocks throughout the year, 52 weeks in the year, and yeah, yeah. each block builds upon itself. So I start very basic, working on a lot of posture drills, a lot of pattern drills, meaning like high knees, making sure that they their torso angle is proper and all those little things. And then after that, we do most of our strength work. And then the strength work, what you probably find too, is you're probably doing more regressions than progressions. Like if you know I want my athlete or my client to be able to bench X amount of weight, but they can barely do 15 strict push-ups. just throwing them under the barbell is probably not the answer. So yeah. we got to find the regression and then maybe they go from push-ups to then the dumbbell press and to like 
a barbell and then a barbell bench press. And that takes weeks and months and sometimes yeah. even years. And then I typically finish it off with some accessory work based off of our session. So that could be single leg work, a lot of low back and posterior chain and hamstring work, just because you're trying to supplement the main, you know, the main work from there. And then we do some type of conditioning at the end. So sounds good. Sounds like a pretty thorough training session. And again, they're taking it, taking that example. You know, athletes coming in day one, and they're going through the proper phases. You know, going through all this body weight work. And the key takeaway, as you mentioned there, some of this takes months, even years. You know, um, some people want to come into the gym in day one and do a week one and do six sessions a week, having never lifted a weight in their life. You know, and it's just the sledgehammer approach almost. Um, there's got to be that gradual progression and that gradual build-up. And as you said there as well, um, you know, making those adjustments, like doing, doing your bodyweight exercises first, there's a lot, a lot of value in that. Just getting those movement patterns right. Um, it's no, There's no point in loading or putting load on to them um, if you can't do the basic ones right to, to begin with, you know. Um, so how does that progression, you mentioned... Uh, the, the, the kind of four 13 week blocks how does that progression look over the course of the year for an athlete yeah so i mean typically athletes are seasonal because yeah, of course yeah yeah, yeah. so it's it's tough so like since we're in a, a gym a private sector gym it's you know what i try to do the four 13 week blocks is you have a preseason, which is block one mm-hmm. you have an in-season block two now that's 26 weeks then you have a postseason, which is another 13 weeks, and then your true off season. And depending on the athlete, they will fall into any of that. So if it's a basketball player, right now we're in preseason. So you train as if you're in preseason, that looks differently. But if you're a football player, you're in season right now. This is like the main in season right now. So yeah, you yeah. have to train a little bit differently. You know, and so based off the athlete and where they fall in, let's say if an athlete comes to train with us part of their pre-questionnaire is, hey, look, outside of injuries and this and that, like what sports do you play and where are you in your season? Okay, you're here. All right, we're going to start you off in this block. So it's not like it's just universal. It's very tailored to the athlete and where they are. Mm-hmm. And see the in-season training that you do. Does, yeah. that, does, that, does the volume and things like that really drop down because of obviously the game time and things like that? How does that look when they're actually – you know, performing week to week in, week out? Yeah, so there's a couple cool things that happen during the in-season or, or what happens during games, right? So three things, you know, three things that occur that are pretty unique is one, when an athlete sprints and jumps, you know, in a game, it is usually not their maximal, maximal output or their absolute output. Because think about it, even if you've ever played sports or what have you, it's like, even if you're running in soccer, basketball, or any game, you're never running like truly max effort yeah, like you're going to And that concept is called the speed reserve. And the speed reserve is something that we work on throughout the entire off season. And the speed reserve is trying to get the athlete's athletic threshold as high as possible so that when they play in their games, they operate here, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. But if an athlete, A, can sprint faster and jump higher than athlete B who's down here, guess what? Their in-game speed now is like here, which is even with athlete B who's 
maximal speed is there. So they're down here. So they're better conditioned. They can operate better in games. So in season training, most coaches just say, Hey, look, we're going to go really light. We're just going to go, you know, not even use the barbell. You're just going to do some push-ups and pull-ups where we actually have an opposite approach where I'm still trying to get stronger in the season, but with a lot less volume, like you said. So like, here's an example, you're squatting, but you're like, Oh, I'm going to do five rounds of five in the off season. Cause I can accrue that much volume yeah. in season. The intensity doesn't go anywhere, but I might only do three rounds of two. Right. Okay. Excellent. So they still maintain that high output so they can jump faster and higher than the competition in games. Yeah. That's, that's quite interesting. Um, I remember, I can't remember, I've seen a study somewhere and I don't, I don't know what it was. Um, but it was on the intensity of training and funnily enough they used very high intensity sessions not very often and even just doing I think I can't remember what over the period of time that the study was but they had the, the, the athletes or whoever you want to call them um, come in and do very uh, high intensity sessions like once, once a week and just doing that maintained a progress just because of how high intensity or the level of intensity it was, you know, the, the volume was was not, was so low. You know, it was it was way down, right, but right. the intensity of the training was there, and that's an that's an excellent, obviously, mechanism you've kind of realised. Um, and is that something you do with all the kind of athletes? And if you've seen really good results for that, yeah, exactly. I, we've used it no matter the athlete. We still kind of use that principle here. Right. The only caveat, though, or the only thing that you must do is that we actually reduce a lot of their sprinting and jumping volume because yeah, they yeah. do so much of it in the game. But their strength training, yes, yeah, still stays pretty high. Right, yeah. And again, so that, that ties into something that maybe some of the audience and listeners could use here. So if you are really struggling to get in one, two workouts a week, say you're massively busy, something like that's come up, even there is a massive benefit to going in and just trying to push out a very high intensity, high, you know, high volume, not high volume, but obviously high intensity session, one to one or two times per week. Because rather than regressing, going backwards, it's going to maintain you. Um, even just that small period, even something like if you go away on holiday or something, um, yeah. you know, getting in, getting in one session a week, really high intensity, it's going to be a lot better for you than just kind of, you know, completely going off plan. Yeah, for ex- exactly. I think that your best, obviously safety, like you're not going to just walk into the gym and be like, all right, I have 30 minutes. I got a max squat. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, but, no warm up. <laughs> yeah. So like come in, do your warm up. Maybe you do more mobility drills, yeah. like you do more recovery drills in season than you did it in the off season and stuff. But yeah, your best bet would be, hey, pick one lift and maybe work up to a, yep. a relatively heavy set of three for the day. Mm-hmm. You know, you get way more benefit there than if you were to come in and do like a full structured training session, that's just going to further fatigue you. And then you might be too tired for your next game or competition. Yeah, I hear you there. I hear you there. That's, that's really interesting. So um, how do, do you do you take control of a lot of the nutritional side for the athletes as well? So nutrition wise, I have a cert, I'm certified by precision nutrition. Okay. But I am not the main nutritionist. We're very fortunate. We actually have an in-house registered dietitian. Right, so okay. She's our nutritionist, and she kind of formulates a lot of the nutrition templates that we give out to a lot of our athletes. Um, 
and therefore it kind of serves as one higher value. Like if you're an athlete and you're like, Oh shoot, they have a registered dietitian. You know, there's not a lot of gyms. There's a lot of coaches that say they're nutritionists, but we're talking (laughs) about someone who went to school for six years to get a degree. So she has this pretty high level of education, but I can still advise and I've still written some nutrition manuals that have helped athletes Mm -hmm. based on, you know, conversations and meetings I've had with our in-house nutritionists to make sure, okay, I'm giving these guys the best, you know, possible information. Yep. How how does your nutrition look like going to put you in the spot here, Adam? What does your kind of typical nutrition look like at the moment? My nutrition? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I am actually I love numbers, right? So I'm super analytical. Okay. You and me both, by the way. You and me both. And so I track all my calories. Yeah, I'm the same. I I use an app called My Macros Plus. And then um, you know, from there, one thing I do that's kind of unique too is I actually weigh myself first thing in the morning, every morning on an empty stomach. Six. I add I add those numbers up, divide by seven, it gives you your weekly average. To that, that's sure. what I do with my clients. That's how I get to do their check-ins as well. Yeah, you have to because otherwise you're just like, you know. 100%. You're, you're kidding yourself on if you're doing it once a week, you know. Right, right. And then I have basically three separate days, like a high day on a high-intensity training day, okay. a medium day, and then like a low day if I'm not training for that day. And then basically those high days are more of like – so I train five days a week. But three days a week are like actual hard training sessions where I sprint, jump, and then do I, I do my strength work. The other two days are more of like my low intensity days where I do more aerobic work and then like a lot of body weight work. And then so those are two like medium days. My three days, Monday, Wednesday, Friday are high days. And then on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday, those are like my low days. So that's kind of the structure, the template. From, okay. a, food, from a food standpoint, I would say I'm 80% healthy. 20% not, right. but I feel like you, when you have the flexibility of tracking, it makes it a little bit easier. Like, you know, I eat chocolate chips, dark morsels, like it's candy. It's <laughs> just throw them in. Oh my gosh. Like no joke. Like in the morning, whole wheat toast, some peanut butter, banana sliced up. Sounds good. And then either eggs or a protein shake, but then I'll have like a cup of chocolate chips. It's really, like, yeah, it's so bad. <laughs> So, well, that, that, that's, that, then that's, that's the beauty of flexible dieting. So I talk about this quite often myself. Um, if, you can manage, if you can control the numbers, if you can manage your calories, hit your protein targets, and the majority of your food is coming from those healthier sources, there's absolutely nothing wrong with including things like that in it. No, because you need the sustainability long term. You've got to. And I think too, like, so we work with a lot of adults here and, you know, a lot of the adults are actually, it's, they're kind of in an actually a higher age range. I don't know if you work with anybody between like 40 and 60, but they, you know, the problem with them is they can eat super well through the week. And then the weekend comes, they're crushing bottles of wine. They're going out to dinner. They're doing all that stuff. But the problem is, is that their actually metabolisms are a lot slower because they're in that age range. Like if you're dealing with a woman who's 45, 50 years old, now she has menopause, right? And now that kind of affects her hormones. And now her nutritional strategies have to be a little bit differently. You couple that with a lot of crash dieting that I see. Yeah. And then they put on the weight again, they put the 20, 30 pounds back on. It's like, guys, look, you're in this endless cycle here of eating badly, crash dieting, weekend binges. It's like, that's why you're never truly seeing, you know, the long-term results of, of any of your work. 
Yeah, and the crash dieting thing, I mean, I know for a fact that a lot of people listening to this will have been through that. So how many of you listening have, have ever been on a very low-calorie crash diet? Say you lost, I don't know, 10 pounds in six weeks or something like that. You're right. eating 1,000 calories. What happens is your metabolism adapts to that lower calories. And as soon as you switch back to the diet after your holiday or after the event, You've now got a down-regulated metabolism, but you get back to eating what you were were before. Whereas if you take the approach that myself and Adam use, um, where you're including these foods like chocolate chips or whatever, um, you know, bagels and things like that, you know, anything that you like, um, but learning to manage the numbers, um, it's a much more sustainable approach. Yeah, 100%. I think... You know, and you know this, obviously, working with a lot of people is that the whole the accountability is really where it comes down to, because you can coach all these people, you can, you know, hold them accountable and tell them what to do. But I think it comes intrinsically with people because they have to take ownership of doing that, you know, and that's where that becomes that's where the half the battle is, you know, as coaches, it's like as coaches you don't need to over deliver these people with information. You don't need to sit down and have giant science lessons with these people. You just have to win their admiration. You just have to encourage them and you have to get buy-in from them because once you get this buy-in from them, then they'd more likely adhere to anything that you're prescribing them. You know? Yeah. I fully, fully. I couldn't agree more. Adam there. And it was funny. I can't remember. I've seen a tweet once. I can't remember who it was buying. It was um, the top three, uh, most important things when it comes to dieting and it was adherence adherence and adherence yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, it, and it's so true I mean if you can find a nutritional strategy or a quote-unquote diet um, that you can stick to that you enjoy and you're going to you're going to be able to ma- manage long term then go with that whatever that is you know as long as of course it's not you know the, the American Western oh, cool. diet you know um, as long as it's going to serve you and your goals, then by all means go ahead. There's no one perfect diet or one perfect method. Um, it's just about making it to suit the individual. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think as coaches, you know, I, you probably spend a lot of time doing this. I know I spend a lot of time doing this. Like, you have to get the, you have to win people over by getting people really to like enjoy being around you and liking you and creating a culture first, because. <laughs> you know, that's how you could get people to do anything really. And, and that's yeah, kind of what's yeah. scary too in the industry. Like you see people with millions of followers who just get people to like them, but what they actually say is garbage and terrible, but it doesn't matter. It's just like, no, I love this person. I love what they do. I'm going to buy their program. Yeah. But it's like their program could be dog crap. So, you know, if, if you know what you say is right and you believe what you do is, is right and you're helping people and you're seeing results, and you have like a good system, if you will, I think more time should be spent trying to get, you know, admiration from others and trying to show people that you want to serve and help other people. Cause that is ultimately, you know, building those relationships and those communities is where you will find all the people in the world you want to work with. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I absolutely had a nail on the head there. And I actually just did, I thought it was something I looked through your Instagram before we come on and noticed that was one of your top posts or one of the most recent posts that you talked about. Now, if it, Adam's Instagram will be linked below. 
But for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's absolutely unbelievable quality. Um, the videos and things he put up are unbelievable. Um, so if you want to go and have a look at that, make sure and check it out. But that, that creating yeah. a community there, um, I think you've had a, a very key aspect. And one thing that a lot of people struggle with when starting out a fitness routine and starting at the gym is that they've not got, not got really anybody to turn to. Um, you know, maybe family members are like, oh, why are you trying that? Or what are you doing? Right. You know, the friends are kind of trying to drag them back down. What would be your advice to anyone who's in that situation trying to trying to seek that community? Yeah, I think, you know, when you're trying to talk to other people about roadblocks, I think it's best to actually include those other people and actually try to show them why it'd be beneficial. So here's kind of a cool story, an example, right? Let's do it. If you have a, so we had an athlete, I'll actually, here's, here's what I'll do. I'll just tell the story. So I had an athlete, I had an athlete come in and this athlete came in, it was a female and she's sitting in the car crying before her first training session. Really? Because Yeah. Because she didn't want to come to the gym. She saw that all these guys that she knew were training here, there's chains, there's loud music. She was just like totally against it. She didn't want to do it. However, as time kind of went on, right, and her mom was kind of like, <clears throat> her mom was encouraging, but like not really encouraging at the same time. It's just like, all right, you need to do this because you're going to play in college, but like not so supportive, like, oh, this is so much money, but you just got to do this, go do this kind of thing. So there's this weird relationship there. So what we did, so what I did was, is like, I knew who this person was because like she kind of gave me little hints. And I would go over and beyond to make sure she had a great experience, address her by name when she comes in. If I corrected her, I'd bring her to the side, not in front of a group of people. At the end of sessions, I would encourage her a lot. Every week, I would send an email to the mother. Hey, look, your daughter's doing so well. This is what she wasn't able to do. Here's what she's doing really well at. Amazing. Over time, you're building this relationship. And I'm keeping the mom or the person who's against it in the loop. And now, long story short, the mom and the dad both train at our gym and they're part of our community with her. And now we like <laughs> all, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool. So little things like that, I think showing them that they're a part of the process and that they could be enablers and even they could be, um, you know, part of the bigger picture, I guess, if you will, and then helping them reach their goals. That's amazing. I, I, I mean, that just shows you the power of having those conversations, of having that encouragement and getting people involved in your goals as well. Um, if you can try and help them see why it's so important to you, why it is you want to achieve it, then if, if they actually, you know, uh, you know, if you've got a good relationship with them, yeah. they're going to have that buy-in with you. Um, so just having those conversations for people or with people around those roadblocks, as you mentioned there, Adam, perfect example. And obviously, Adam's going over the top here, uh, really trying to make people feel comfortable, um, which is, is, is our job as coaches, you know. Yeah, you know, I think, like we said, it, it's just – I. that's why I kind of, too, if you ever look on my, my page, is I don't just try to put out training information, right, because I could do that – I could do that very easily, meaning like I could post three times a day just about training. Try this exercise. Here's something I read. Here's something cool. Go ahead. Go do all these different things. But I think, though, what makes it different is that, you know, I try to post things about building a culture, building a community. Yeah, and just showing like, hey, look, we're more than just a training center. So like I offer you 
my undivided attention. I want to give you 150% of my effort. And I think that's what's panned out really well too, you know, and, and um, this is kind of a little business tip, I guess, if you will, what I've done is like, I gave away a lot of my stuff for free first. And I created Facebook groups and community groups of literally 15 to 30 people where I would just give things for free guys, critique this guys, what else do you want? Answer all these questions from there. And then those people now have become like loyal customers because you went so far and beyond. So to circle back and answer your point, I think as a coach, it's important that you show that, Hey, a, I'm very knowledgeable, but B I will go above and beyond to create a culture driven community for you guys to make sure that, you guys get all of your goals and everything met by me because they both work kind of together. That's amazing. That and, and it's it's clear from your posts and things like that. You can you can see you do put that message out, Adam, which is great to see. Now, one thing I'd like to kind of uh, ask you just before we kind of finish up, probably about five ten minutes left. Yeah. It's okay. No um. Obviously, if when you're working with high-level athletes or and you're keeping these, you're keeping them training things like this, is, this is more like maybe even a selfish question for me. But yeah. how do you keep them recovered? You know, how do you keep them on tip-top form when there's so much training, there's so many games? Is there anything you're doing um, recovery-wise that's keeping them in you know top form? Yeah. So I think one thing that you have to realize is that stress manifests itself in many different ways the body does not distinguish between psychological and physical stress and when you understand that there's so many different factors that play a role so to answer your question <clears throat> i um excuse me i wrote an article for simply faster called the stress scale for athletes and in the stress scale i kind of used a combination of all these different things prilipin's chart um different rpe charts and basically what the stress scale is, is when an athlete or client comes in from you, they can see, they literally will be able to see, you know, hey, look, like, let's say you have the chart here, right? Yeah. Like, hey, you're going to bench, you're going to do five by three. And you're asking for feedback. So they might say on a scale of one to 10, you'd say, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how'd that feel? And they would say, oh, that felt like a five. Okay, that was 50%. That's about where you should be. Then they warm up to 75%, let's say, and they're like, how'd that feel? Let's go one to 10. That actually felt like an eight. And you're like, well, if that felt a little bit more, I go to my chart. So I'm like right there. And I could say, oh, you know, your fatigue level is probably at a level four. And I can show you the chart. I could even send you the chart if you'd like. But yeah, yeah, please do. And it's like, okay, hey, look, you're here. Here's what we're going to do. You're actually going to back off and you're going to do this prescribed volume for this exercise for today. And it's not perfect, but I've tested it on thousands of athletes. So it has some type of empirical response, positive response, and basically allows coaches on the spot to make a game time decision of how to change and manipulate the volume based off of the stress that's going on. Right. Okay. Yeah. I hear you there. So if, if obviously if they are saying that a, an eight or a nine out of 10 on RP and something they should be theoretically a six or seven, you're going to right. put the volume on that day. Right, exactly. Yeah, because I think, you know, what happens is, is like you might just make a game time decision. So like, like as a coach, you might just be like, all right, we're not going to do this movement. Like you're so tired, you know what, let's just do something else. But in reality, it's like, no, you don't have to change the stimulus, stick to your plan, right? Because everybody loves a plan. So stick to your plan, 
but here's how you can moderate the volume and still get the desired training effect that you're looking for for that given day without like just blowing it up. You know, you're, like, you know how you see sometimes like back in the day, it'd be like, oh, I'm so sore when I bench, my chest hurts. I'm not going to bench today. I'm going to go do this. <laughs> it's like, well, you just kind of ruined your plan or you just ruined your program because instead you could have backed off and done a different variation of it or you could have done a different tempo or whatever. But instead, you decided to just change everything. And as a result of that, that's why the long-term progress could be halted a little bit. Yes, yeah, spot on there. And again, that's something for anyone listening to, to take into account there as well. Um, if you maybe go into the gym and maybe you had a shit night's sleep last night, and as, right. as Adam said, there are stressors as well. If you're working long weeks, if you get children, a family, all these stressors, and maybe, do you know what, maybe you just this week isn't, you know, it's not the best. You still go in. It doesn't mean you don't do what you need to do. It maybe just means you operate at a 7 out of 10 instead of a regular 9 out of 10. Um, And just going in and, you know, it's not a wasted session. If you are going in and maybe just feeling like you're going through the motions, you're still getting in there, you're keeping that movement pattern fresh. Maybe, do you know what, maybe if you're um, struggling a bit that day, maybe you dial back the, the weight a bit and work in your form for that day. You know, you're still getting benefit from that session by doing these things. Um, and that's obviously something that's um, a key factor for your athletes, Adam, um, is obviously just keeping that training high skill as high as possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I think, too, if you look at a natural athlete, which hopefully we all are, right, is <laughs> if you're a natural athlete, the way that you're going to build the most amount of muscle and gain the most amount of strength is through strength training and progressive yeah, overload, right? It's the only way. Um, there's no substitute. Like you and I could never do 10 sets of 10 and expect to get bigger if A, we're not progressing and B, we don't have like a long-term goal. A natural athlete, a guy who benches 350 and a guy who benches 250, the guy who benches 350 will always be have more muscle than the guy if you're a natural athlete than 250. So the reason I like the stress scale so much is just because it allows you to still work on the movement that you're trying to get the biggest adaptation from. But like you just said, you know, perfectly is that you can still find a different variation for it. You just don't have to change it as much. And that's kind of where I, I like it. Cause I always like to plan for like a long-term plan and I don't like it. You know, when it's like, like I said before, you just scrape it. It's like, Oh, that didn't feel good. All right, let's not do it. Yeah. It's and you're setting yourself just, back. Yeah, it's more just about finding a workaround for that day or that week or whatever it is. Um, it doesn't need to be just throw the towel in and give up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, that, that's been a very interesting chat for me and anyone listening. Um, so let's kind of leave, let's, I, I like to leave the, the listeners with kind of, you know, tips of some of some form. Um, I'm trying to think. So, obviously, you've worked with a lot of athletes, as as we've kind of discussed here. So, see for the kind of general population, those older forty to sixty olds. What are the kind of top three to five tips? Um, or anyone looking to get started into a fitness routine, or who's in that age bracket, and even with any sort of training nutrition kind of tactics, what are your kind of top three to five things that you would tell someone in day one to go and start working on? Yeah. So I think number one, if you look at a pyramid, so I'll do five layers of the pyramid. Let's do number, it. 
number one is going to be movement quality. As I've seen a lot of adults get older, as of you, making sure that you can still move well. Can I still do squat to parallel? Can I do an overhead lunge perfectly? Can I roll around on the ground and just stand up? Little things like that, right? So can I move is number one. Because if you can move, then we can start to incorporate some lower impact stuff. Number two would be the foundation would be your strength for an older population or the general population. And that's just building your strength of power in your horse or your tank, if you will. You know, I call it like horsepower. But that is going to be coming from any type of movements. And I think if you were to do it in a phase, so if I let's map out a little program for somebody. If you were to do it in a phase, the first three weeks, you do more single leg work to work on stability. And you can do still whatever type of pressing you would like, but a lot more unilateral work in the first three okay. weeks. As they progress, so that's layer two. Layer three, if you'd like to do any type of speed or power movement, I have three rules that you should abide by. And the number one is slow to fast, meaning do everything very slow over the course of the first few weeks and then progress a little bit faster. Next is soft to hard, meaning impact. So let's say you, know, you don't want somebody to just come out of the gate and do full-on 20-yard sprints if they haven't sprinted in a long time or jumped in a long time. So do you know, maybe softer sprints. So you do like a falling sprint or you do like a 50% sprint for a shorter distance, which tags into rule number three, which is short to long. So always go with shorter distances first to get acclimated and then go to your longer distances. So that's layer three. So we have our movement, our unilateral strength, and then our speed and power, how I would progress throughout the weeks. Okay. Number two, that our number four of that layer then would come down to energy system development. And you know something that I think a lot of people don't prioritize is where bodybuilders got it right, is your aerobic base. Because sports and most training inherently is more anaerobic based. But your ability to recover between anaerobic sessions is going to be having a firm aerobic base. So that's kind of that layer four to allow you to recover from all the subsequent things. And then the next thing, if you're feeling dangerous and you want to start, you know, maybe getting into like some of this true stuff that we do is we do like the final work is some long lines of like a team competition or an athlete complex, which really just pushes the body to feel like an athlete. You know, you're doing something a little outside the box. So like if you're a normal gen pop who maybe trains more like a, I don't want to say a bodybuilder, but more of like a healthy athlete or someone along those lines. Yeah. yeah. What if you want to get your butt kicked, number five at the top is any type of athlete complex that we would do. And that could be like ski sprints into a heavy sled drag into like a hammer hit onto a tire or like a rope pull or something just so outside the box where it makes you compete and you get after it and you're just like, whoa, I've never done something like this, <laughs> but it's just fun. It's a little different. So yeah. those are kind of the five layers that we kind of train with. And even if you're new, just adhere to those rules and hopefully, you know, you don't get hurt. Sign your waiver. <laughs> That's it. Well, that was an excellent insight there, Adam. Um, that was very interesting for me. Absolutely, and I'm sure the listeners will have really enjoyed that as well. Um, so tell us where we can find you, tell us who you help, and just kind of give us a wee final sign-off as well, please. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram. That's kind of where I'm most, you know, I'm most active, at Adam, A-D-A-M, Menner, M-E-N-N-E-R. And there I help coaches and athletes in the private sector setting. So not like in a professional setting, but in a private sector setting. I help athletes with long-term performance programs for their sports, specifically basketball players. And then I help coaches 
also help create those performance programs for other athletes as well. And then something I'm working on, which is exciting, if anybody's interested, before the end of the year, I'm going to launch a career course that helps coaches specifically with who deal with athletes create long-term careers and businesses in the industry. So, Excellent, Adam. Thanks very much for that. Um, so if anyone wants to have a look, Adam's Instagram will be linked in the, the show notes below. Um, go and check his Instagram out, even just for the quality of tips and things he puts out. The video is incredible. Um, it's really got, really worth giving him a follow. Um, obviously, extremely knowledgeable and experienced in what he does. And Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Andrew, so much. You know, I, I love doing all these things. And Obviously, guys, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, just send them my way and you know I'll be I'll be ready to help you guys out. Absolutely, man. So final thing for anyone, of course, if you take a screenshot of the podcast and tag me in it or leave a review below, I'll happily give you a free coaching call. And also you'll find in the description links as well a link to a free custom meal plan and fat loss webinar for anyone who's interested. Now that's us signing off. Uh, Adam, thanks very much. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, And we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you.